Well, as James mentioned at the start, um, this is one of two Sundays in the year when we just take some time to think about who we are as a church and why we do what we do. It was apparently um, the essayist Samuel Johnson who said that most people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. And that's probably true. If you've been around P's and G's for any length of time, hopefully you know what our vision is as a church. It's on our website, it's on our publications. We recite it again and again and again. But if you're not sure, if you're a visitor perhaps, or if you're new, then our vision is very clear. We believe, and we adopted this statement about 18 months ago, that God is calling us over the next four or five years to be a church that makes whole life disciples, sharing the whole of the gospel, with the whole of society through churches of grace. That's what we believe God is calling us to do and be over the next four or five years. And if you say it very quickly, it takes about 15 seconds tops. We believe that God is calling us to be a church that makes whole life disciples, sharing the whole of the gospel with the whole of society through churches of grace. And as I say, in 15 seconds, bang, you've got our vision statement as a church. But it sounds simple, it sounds easy, the reality of course is anything but. It's complicated, it's demanding, it is extremely challenging. We're not naive enough to think that in four or five years we're going to make whole life disciples, but that's what we want to do, that's what we want to be. How do we do that? Well, we believe that God has given us these four strands of our strategy, or arrows as we call them. So initially there is the discipleship one. Over the next four or five years, we want to think through, pray through, help each other think through how we can be better followers of Christ. What does it mean for the image of Christ to be formed more fully in each of us? How does it feel? What does it look like for Jesus to become more real, more vibrant, bigger in your life and in my life? And that's one of the reasons why Libby has joined us as Associate Rector. Her particular area of responsibility uh, will be this area of discipleship, how we grow as followers of Christ, because everything else stands or falls on that particular strand. So Libby, no pressure. It's not all down to her. But that's the most important thing, is that we are growing in our relationship with Christ. But if we're growing in our relationship with Christ, then the next strand or arrow is that of social transformation. We want to see ourselves changed, but we want to see the city in which we live. We want to see the nation in which we live changed, transformed. And that will be in different ways. It'll be perhaps through safe families, perhaps through home for good, perhaps through soul food, all different ways in which we as a church corporately and individually engage in changing the world around us to enable the kingdom of God to come in us and through us. And then we believe that God is also calling us to think about the area of theological education. Um, in a minute, I'll share some statistics with you about the church in Scotland, which are fairly scary. And the reality is that 75% of church leaders in Scotland are due to retire in the next 12 years. 83% of church leaders in Scotland are over the age of 55. Now, there's nothing wrong with being over 55. It's good to be over 55. It brings a certain maturity and bearing to one's personality. I am over 55. But the reality is that 75% of church leaders in Scotland across denominations 
are due to retire in the next 10 or 12 years. We have to train younger leaders. And we have to train younger leaders differently to lead different types of churches. That's one of the reasons why we have James. As I said this morning, there are many reasons when I ask myself during the week, why do we have James? But we deliberately chose James as a younger leader, a younger ordained leader, so that he might be a role model. So that some of you might come into church and see James leading a service and think, well, if God can call him, he can call anybody. But he might... And and now a nice thing. No, I said nice things before um, about Alice. Um, But James is is a role model. Because we want you, if you're under the age of 30, to think that God might call you to ordain ministry. That God might call you to lead a church. And we're influencing the denomination of which we're a part, the the part of the Anglican Communion, what's called the Scottish Episcopal Church, to think how it might train leaders differently to lead different types of churches. And then the fourth and final strand is that having trained younger leaders to lead different types of churches, then we start to plant other churches. Along with different churches around Scotland, we start to plant new congregations. We start to see new life coming to old buildings. We start to see new congregations established where at the moment there are no living vital churches. So that's our vision. Discipleship, social transformation, theological education, and then church planting. But the, the nation in which we live is a beautiful nation But it's also a nation in which the need is increasing. And the need is quite scary. We might see a picture postcard like that on the screen of of Edinburgh and think that that is Scotland. But the reality is quite different spiritually. If you remember, I mentioned it last September, there was a research project done last year called Transforming Scotland. And it looked at the state of Christianity and faith and religion in Scotland. And they asked people who weren't Christians, and they asked people who were Christians, what they thought about a whole set of different questions. And we found out that 12% of the population of Scotland are practicing Christians, with 5% being what would we call evangelical Christians. Or put another way, you could fit all the evangelicals into Hampden Park, Murrayfield Stadium, and Easter Road Football Ground, and that would be all the evangelicals in Scotland, in those three stadiums. They wouldn't want to be in those stadiums, but at least they'd be safe, and they'd be locked up, and they would be away from the rest of the population. In that survey, 70% of Scots said that they were not interested in religion at all, while 61% thought the church had nothing really to offer them. 63% of Scots, this is a nation that was once known as the people of the book, 63% of the population of Scotland have never read a Bible. Never read a Bible. So you might say, oh, you know that verse? You know that passage? No. 63% of the population that you and I live amongst have never read the Bible. They haven't got a clue about the parable of the Good Samaritan or the parable of the lost sheep or whatever story you may mention. They have never heard it in their lives. 63% of Scots have never read a Bible. However, somehow, 
55% have an overall favorable impression of Christianity. 61% of Scots say that Christianity has good values and principles, while 69% believe that church is a favorable thing for a community to have. They don't go to church, but they think it's a really good thing that a community has one, a bit like a library. You never go to it, but it's a really important thing that you know is there, just in case. Now, when it came to comparing attitudes between Scots and the English, and I know I'm on dodgy territory here as an English person, Scots were more negative than the English. There was a similar survey done at the same time in England. And what they discovered is that in Scotland, 23% of Scots thought Christianity was incompatible with science, 21% of Scots thought it judgmental, and this is the fascinating thing, 20% of Scots thought that Christians were hypocritical. And that compares with only 10% of people in England who thought that Christians in England were hypocritical. Now, I'm not going to make any comment on that, having lived in Scotland for 20 years as an English person, but I just think it's an interesting commentary on the church in Scotland that Scots are twice as likely to think that the church in their nation is full of hypocrites. The reality is, if you look at the church in Scotland, if you look at the projections, if you look at the statistics, if you look at the figures, humanly speaking, the church in Scotland is shrinking and shrinking fast. The decline has been more dramatic in the last 15 years than it has south of the border. They were further ahead. They were declining faster earlier. They've now arrested that decline, despite some of the figures that came out this week. And they're starting to think through, particularly in the Church of England, ways in which they can respond and beginning to, to grow as a church in England. Scotland is about 10 or 15 years behind that curve. Now, humanly speaking, as they say, the figures are quite scary. 75% of church leaders due to retire in the next 10 or 12 years. If you carry the graphs through, in 50 years' time, the church in Scotland will not exist. In 50 years' time, if we are just reduced to human thinking and human ways of working it out, people will not sit in the seats that you are sitting in now in 50 years' time, because all the projections are downward. The only graph that's going upwards is the age of the church leaders. Everything else is going down. Now, the good news is that we are not restricted in the church to human thinking, human potential, and human abilities. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's not my job to build a church. It's not your job to build the church. It is God's job to build the church. And for 2,000 years, he has built his church. And the gates of hell have not and will not prevail against it. And the church in Scotland will exist in 50 years' time. It may well be in a different form, in different ways, but the church will exist in Scotland. But even though the church is dependent only upon God and upon his work and upon his sovereignty... The reality is that he does, for some reason, involve people like you and me. He does call us as human beings, as Christians, as Christ followers, to be involved in helping the church to be the church that God longs for it to be. 
So this evening I want to speak about two or three particular things that we believe that God is speaking to us about um, and will have implications for what we do together as a church, particularly over the next 12 months. I think the first thing that I want to say this evening is, is how much I love this church. Um, you are a great church to lead. You're a great church to be part of. There are so many kind, exciting, generous, committed, compassionate people who are part of P's and G's. You are a remarkable community. You are gifted, you are generous, you are committed, you are enthusiastic. You are a remarkable church that I have had the privilege to lead for the past 20 years. And as I was thinking about it this week, it's actually a real privilege to be able to say that. I meet lots of church leaders who, if I'm honest, they sound as though they don't like their churches. And if they weren't paid to go, they wouldn't go to their church. That's being brutally honest. If I wasn't working for P's and G's, P's and G's is the church that I would still want to be part of in Edinburgh. Because I love the way that we do things as a church. And I love the way in which I see the kingdom of God working through people like you. Whether it's from the children's work that we heard mention of a, a, a few moments ago with Gemma. Just leading an amazing children's work. 150 naught to 11s every week. Wreak havoc in our church building. But it's great. Gemma leads a ministry that is bigger than most churches in the UK. And that gives us that platform to, to think about, having talked about it for years, and Gemma has wanted to do this for years, to think about a way in which we can encourage other churches to think about doing their children's work differently, not to follow us. It will be different in their context, in their congregation. But could we get together a group of people, volunteers probably, because there aren't many people like Gemma who are paid full-time to work with children in churches in Scotland, the Scripture Union, but not many churches pay people to work with children. Can we get volunteers from across Scotland to come together and to think about how they can lead children to Jesus? How can they can help children learn more about Jesus, grow in their relationship with Jesus? Because the reality is that there aren't very many places in Scotland where people who lead children's work and help in children's work can go to be encouraged and supported and prayed for. So that's one initiative that we're going to do. And then there's things like our counselling service that offers counselling to people, hundreds of people across Scotland every year and, and trains other people to do counselling. There's soul food that feeds over 100 people who are vulnerable every Saturday in this church. There are those of you who Monday through to Saturday work in social services or the emergency services or in the health service seeking to, to bring about transformation and change through your everyday job, whether it's as a, as a school teacher or a social worker or a doctor or a nurse or a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a, a physioterrorist or whatever it might be. You do, rem sorry, physiotherapist, isn't it? Um, maybe that's a Freudian slip. Um, but we have people in this church, whether it's in the business world, 
You're seeking to make a difference. You're seeking to make society a better place because of the way that you live your life, because of the business decisions that you make, because of the way that you influence people, because of the way that you treat your colleagues. You're seeking to bring about the kingdom of God where you are. You are a remarkable group of people. You're a very generous church financially. You're a church that gives over £74,000 to support our mission partners around the world. These aren't people who are strangers or random missionaries. These are people who once sat where you sat this, even, sit this evening. They're, they're church members who, who felt God calling them to go and serve God in different parts of the world. And, and you give over £74,000 to enable them to do what they do in Japan and South Africa and, and parts of, of the world right across the globe. But you're also a church, when we came to you just before Christmas and said, can you give towards the work of Tear Fund? Because they're working with refugees in Syria. So far, you've given over £7,500 plus gift aid on top of that £74,000 that you already gave to World Mission. You are a remarkably generous, gifted, committed group of people. And together with other churches like Central and Destiny, Baptist churches in Stirling and Glasgow, churches in the Church of Scotland and one or two other Episcopal churches, we are bucking the trend. Now, it's a dangerous trend because we have churches that are growing and churches that are getting larger, but the danger is that all that's happening is that we've got fewer people going to larger churches. So it's a bit like Tesco's or um, Aldi or Lidl or if you're from Stockbridge, Waitrose. Um, but people abandoning the small corner shop and going to the big supermarket. Now we want to start reverse planting. We want to start planting corner shops again. Churches that have something of the DNA of P's and G's. They won't be exactly the same as P's and G's. They'll be different because of the context and the people who go. We began two years ago with All Souls Fife, but we have plans for more in the future. You are a remarkably gifted group of people. And we believe that through us and other churches across Scotland, God will build his church. But what might we do more effectively? What might we do differently? Well, one of the areas that we've been thinking about over the past few months is that of prayer. Over the last five years, we've tried different ways of praying as a church. We've tried 24-7 prayer rooms. We've tried 24-7 prayer weeks. We've tried an, um, uh, an email prayer chain where over 150 people now are signed up to get regular prayer bulletins during the week and prayer requests from people in this church and people who don't go to any church. Then there's the things like the soul text challenge that we tried uh, just over a year ago where we sent each other texts during the day to make uh, to help each other think about what does it mean to be a Christian in this moment where I am, in my school, in my college, in my university, in my workplace, at the school gate, wherever I am, what does it mean for the fruit of the Spirit to be seen in my life now? But as we've talked and discussed as a leadership team, one of the things that struck us is we weren't sure if you asked people about the prayer life of P's and G's, what they would say. There are many good things that we do as a church, but how would people characterize our prayer life? Now, people in P's and G's do pray. We have those prayer weeks, prayer rooms, etc. 
But can prayer become more of a value in our church? Can prayer become more central to who we are as a church? Now, the reality is that we can always pray more. If you want to uh, make a Christian guilty, you talk about them about two subjects, either evangelism or prayer. And immediately people feel very guilty because they know they can be better at both. That's not what we want to do. We want to ask you as a church to come with us over the next 12 months and, and try a few experiments and see what it is like to, to develop a culture of prayer within P's and G's. So that from 12 months from now, our prayer life might be richer and deeper as a community. That we might have learned a bit more how to listen to God. That we might have learned a bit more how to pray, to intercede for other people. That we might have learned different ways and different styles of praying. Now, just this week, partly in preparation for this, um, I started reading Tim Keller's excellent book on prayer. And he wrote this book uh, five or six years ago because he himself was struggling with prayer. And if I'm honest, it's one of the areas in the Christian life that I struggle with. I'm not a natural prayer. I don't find it easy to pray. And uh, you can keep me accountable. I've read the first chapter of Tim Keller's book on prayer. You can ask me in three or four weeks' time whether I've read chapter two of Tim Keller's book on prayer and whether I've actually prayed. Uh, because that's the test, isn't it? Not just all well and good reading about prayer, but you actually then need to start praying. Well, Keller observed that as he looked at the ways in which different people thought about prayer, they really fell into two camps. There was a whole lot of literature and conferences and products and books about one particular way of praying, and there was a whole lot of literature and conferences and books and stuff about another way of praying. One he describes as communion prayer. Now, that doesn't involve bread and wine, but it's, it's where that sort of prayer emphasizes the person's relationship with God. It's all about you and Jesus. It's all about you developing your relationship with God. It's all about you becoming more intimate with the Father. It's all about your experience with God. That was communion prayer. Over here was a different type of prayer with as many books and conferences and literature and so-called experts. And this is what Keller calls kingdom prayer. This is where people want to pray the kingdom of God into action, into effect. And so they, they pray for the kingdom of God to come. It might be um, through prayer or evangelism or healing or social transformation. And Keller observed that the two different types of prayer rarely meet and it, it struck Tim Keller that we're called as Christians to be both and Christians rather than either or. That we need the communion types of prayers, but we also need the kingdom prayers. We need the horizontal and we need the vertical. You need both because it forms a cross. But we need that instant vibrant, living relationship with God to be deepened, but then we need to pray that that will be effective, that that will be lived out, that that will be seen in the way in which we live our lives. Called to be both and. And he found a term from the Scottish theologian, a guy called John Murray, to be helpful. Murray writes about what he thinks we should be called to as Christians, being described as an intelligent mysticism. An intelligent mysticism 
mysticism. What does that mean at three minutes past eight on a Sunday evening? It means praying, pleading, asking the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to help us experience our theology, i.e. what we believe about God, what we believe about God the Father, what we believe about God the Son, what we believe about the Spirit, what we believe about the church, what we believe about the world to be experienced in our life, not simply talked about or sung about. That these things that we say we believe will become living realities and applied into each of our hearts. Now, the Apostle Paul felt similarly in that passage that Roger read for us a few moments ago. If you want to turn back to it, it's in Ephesians chapter 3, or if you've got a smartphone, uh, open up the, uh, the Bible app and get to Ephesians 3. Now, if I'm honest, um, Ephesians is my favorite letter in the New Testament. Um, Someone said to me when we were having sort of afternoon tea, um, I was telling them that Ephesians is my favorite um, book in the New Testament, and they said, are you allowed to have favorites? I said, that's a really good question. I've never thought about it. But Ephesians is my favorite book uh, of all the letters that Paul and John wrote, partly because I think that Ephesus was the favorite church that Paul planted. We read in Acts chapter 19 when he says uh, goodbye to the leaders of the church in Ephesus for the final time, he, he weeps, he cries because he's convinced that this will be the last time that he'll see them. You see, Paul was, was intrinsic to the founding and planting of the church in Ephesus. He, he stayed there, we're told, for three years um, he hired a, a, hall, a lecture hall, the Hall of Tyrannus, and he debated every day, persuading people to become Christians. And it was the place, perhaps, that he stayed the longest. And Ephesus, he knew, was a really difficult place to be a Christian. In size, it was quite similar to Edinburgh. Population, about 300,000 people, they reckon. It was the administrative and uh, commercial center of its region. Um, a, 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 an amphitheater, a stadium uh, that had a capacity of about 25,000 people, very similar to Easter Road. Um, that stadium in, in Ephesus was used uh, for the annual Olympic Games that were held there. And it was also the center of one of uh, the huge sort of cults in the ancient world. Um, in the ancient world, there were these seven great wonders of the world, and one of them was the Temple of Diana or Artemis, a goddess. And this temple was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. So think of the national monument on Carlton Hill that wasn't finished. And think of something, uh, I don't know, eight times that size made out of those stone pillars. And you get some impression of what this um, temple to the goddess Diana was like. It was staffed by 25,000 cultic prostitutes. You think we have a large staff team. 25,000 uh, people, women, on this temple staff who, whose basic job was part of the worship. You went and had sex with one of these prostitutes. So it was a huge center of occult activity. And when Paul arrived in Ephesus, there was immediate kickback against the Christian faith. Now, there was economic opposition. There was a riot broke out. And uh, as well as all the spiritual stuff, there was physical opposition, and they had to smuggle Paul out of the city. 
and then get him back in at one stage. So this is a church that means a great deal to the Apostle Paul. And I find it interesting in his two prayers in this letter, what Paul prayed for this church in Ephesus. If you've got your Bible open, flip back to chapter 1, where we see there that he prays in, from verse 13, 15 onwards, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith, and there's a description of what Paul prays for the church in Ephesus in chapter 1. And he prays three things. Three very simple things. He prays that they'll get to know Jesus better. He prays that they will know the hope that they've been given. And he prays that they will know the incomparably great power, the power of the resurrection. Jesus, hope, and incomparably great power. In his second prayer, in that passage that Roger read for us in chapter 3, he goes further. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Now, in the Jewish culture and in the early Christian church, people were encouraged to pray in a particular way. You prayed standing up with your arms extended, what we might call the charismatic pose or Pentecostal pose of praying. Paul doesn't say that in this prayer. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. And whenever you see or hear somebody described as kneeling in prayer in the Bible, it indicates a particular affection, a particular concern, or a particularly vital moment. And the tense that Paul writes with is a particular tense in the Greek, indicating that this is something he used to always do. So he's not saying, whenever I knelt once for you, I prayed. He's saying, whenever I pray, I always kneel for you. And I'm doing this on a repeated action. It's a repeated way of praying. Day after day, I'm kneeling down and I'm crying out to God for you, Ephesian Christians. I'm praying for God that you might know Jesus better, that you might know the hope to which you've been called, and that you might know this incomparably great power. And then he goes on to pray, interestingly, with all this spiritual warfare in front of them, he says, I go on to pray that the things that I've prayed for you in chapter 1, that they will be enabled, that they will be experienced, that they will be actualized in your life. And he prays four things. Verse 16, he prays that they will be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Interesting that faced with all the spiritual opposition in Ephesus, with the occult and the spells and the magicians and the demonic that was obviously present in Ephesus, Paul does not pray for spiritual authority. He doesn't pray for spiritual protection. He doesn't pray for spiritual victory. It's quite different to many of the books that have been written about spiritual warfare over the last 30 or 40 years. He doesn't mention any of those things. He simply prays that they will be strengthened with the Holy Spirit. And that's his emphasis. If the battle is out there, the key is inside here, Paul is saying. Your battle may be external. It may be against flesh and blood. It may be against spiritual forces. But the key is your internal life. It's whether you are filled with the Holy Spirit, whether the power of God, the life of God is living in you. Secondly, in verse 17, he prays that Christ may dwell in their hearts. He's praying and he's writing to Christians. 
but he still prays that Christ may dwell, live, settle down, and be at home in their hearts. Thirdly, he prays that they might grasp the love of Christ, verse 18. That word grasp means to apprehend or comprehend. It's not just an intellectual knowledge about God's love, but an experience and actualization. And to know this love, he says, that surpasses knowledge. Now, knowledge in the ancient world was really, really important. There were these group of people called the Gnostics who believed that if you had this gnosis, that's the Greek word for knowledge, then you would have all sorts of spiritual insights and spiritual secrets. And Paul says, I want you to know this love, and this love surpasses knowledge. I want you to grasp how wide and long and high and deep this four-dimensional love of Christ is. I want you to know, Paul says, in the depth of your inner being, how much God loves you. That's what he prays for the church in Ephesus. That they will know how much they are loved. Because if you, if you understand that you are loved, then everything changes. If you know deep down that you are loved, everything is transformed. If you know that you are unconditionally and unreservedly loved and accepted, then that sets you free. I love this quote from a guy called Dan Allender, who is a theologian and psychoanalyst. He said this, the more we tell the truth about ourselves, the more we realize how much we are loved. The worst has been told about us, and we are still loved. Therefore, we're free to fail, free not to worry about the consequences, free not to fear any loss. Everything is a gift. Therefore, name the darkness in you. It can be redeemed. You can be redeemed. You see, many of us live our lives thinking that we can hide things, thinking that we can hide things from each other thinking that we can hide things from ourselves, thinking that we can hide things even from God. But God knows everything about us. It struck me, it was a bit like, um, did you see that kitchen in that video, um, that Safe Families for Children? Maybe like me, you thought, that is one clean kitchen. <laughs> that is one tidy kitchen. You know, there was nothing on the work surfaces. There was no bread. There was nothing at all. All the work surfaces were absolutely clear. Do you know, Kathy and I, we made a video like that for World Vision about eight years ago. You can still go on, the, uh, on YouTube and you'll see it. It's called Take Two, and it tells the story of our first trip to Kenya. It took us two days to get our kitchen looking like that. <laughs> On the video, if you go on YouTube, you will see our kitchen. And our kitchen looks like that. It is the only time in 20 years that our kitchen has looked like that. All the work surfaces are clean. All the work surfaces are clear. There is no bread bin. There is no microwave. There are no coffee mugs. There's no bowls from breakfast. Everything has been cleaned. But when we had that video made in our house there was a room and there was a room in which everything had been put <laughs> everything that would look messy on the video was in that room 
it was like that sort of room of concealment in Harry Potter. You know, and you just about open the door, but if you open the door, everything would come flying out at you. Now, the reality is that for many of us in our lives, we've got a room like that. We think we can put things away and hide them, and God won't know about them. If that's the way in which you think about God, I've got news for you this evening. God knows about that room. God knows about everything in your room. God knows about everything that you want to hide away from other people. When you give the impression to other people, even at church, perhaps especially at church, that you are a really neat, tidy kitchen, that there's nothing messy, that there's nothing out of sorts, that there's nothing where it shouldn't be in your life. The reality is that God knows everything about you. And you are still deeply loved. You are still accepted. You are unreservedly and unconditionally and amazingly gracely loved because of who God is. Jesus did not die for nice people. Jesus did not die for good people. Jesus died for people like you and me, people who are not nice, people who are not good, people who know what they're really like and who are willing to own up to that fact before God. That's why it's so sad that 20% of Scots think that Christians are hypocritical. Because for so many years, Christians in Scotland have pretended to be something other than they actually are. If we were more honest with people and tell them what we're really like and that God still loves us, then they'd think, well, maybe if God can love you, then maybe there's a chance for me. And the result, fourthly and finally, is that if you know you're loved, do you see how Paul ended that prayer in verse 19? If you know that you're loved, then you're filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. That's how you're filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. It's not by some special prayer. It's not by some special song. It's not by going to a particular conference or even to a particular church. It's by being known that you are deeply and fully loved. That's how you are filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. Because if you know that you're loved and accepted, then the, the love of God, the life of God, the power of God fills you. And you're filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. It struck me this week that when Jesus was baptized and that the Holy Spirit comes upon him to anoint him for his public ministry, what happens? There's a voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love. Jesus knew every day that he was loved. And that set him free to be the person that he was. But every day Jesus had to go and spend time with the Father, possibly to remember how much he was loved. Because he knew about it all the time in eternity when he was there in the Trinity. But coming to earth, something changed. The human part of him had to be reminded day after day that he was loved by God the Father. And so that's our prayer for peace and peace. That we might learn what it is to know that we are loved. And not just that that would transform our prayer life but that also that that would transform the way in which we see people who as yet don't know Jesus. We don't just want this to be an inward thing where we know how much we're loved. 
We want to tell other people outside of this church that they're loved too. So that's why we're going to make some changes to the 7 o'clock service. Not major changes, but we're going to have for the first time for 16 years a different teaching series in the morning and a different teaching series in the evening. We're going to teach about prayer at 9 and 11 o'clock. And in the evenings at 7 o'clock, we're going to teach on subjects that matter to the group of people who you see on the stage. Oh, it's not the stage, the screen. Um, these are what are called millennials. And in that research, the Transforming Scotland research, it showed one other surprising difference between England and Scotland. Millennials, those between the ages of 18 and 30, who aspire to look like that. <laughs> Let me tell you, millennials, none of you do. But you aspire to look like that. You aspire to be that bald, or you aspire to... It's like a sort of Gap advert, isn't it? You know, the sort of Dockers or something, I don't know what it is. But that generation in Scotland, they're more open than their English counterparts. They're more interested in what the Christian faith has to say about work and money and life and relationships. And so over the next few months, we're going to teach on those subjects in our 7 o'clock service. Now, it doesn't mean that if you're over 30, you can't come. It doesn't mean that if you're over 30, the talks won't be relevant for you. But we're going to hopefully make it accessible for people in that particular age group. Now, some people have said, well, I'm a Christian. I'm over 30. Does that mean I can't come to the 7 o'clock service and there's nothing in the 7 o'clock service for me? No. I was very struck this week because sometimes people come to me and they say, you know, I want deeper teaching. I want spiritual meat. I want to get beyond the gospel. And I came across this this week, this quote by a writer who said, God does not move us beyond the gospel. He moves us more deeply into the gospel because all of the power that we need in order to change and mature comes through the gospel. The gospel does not simply ignite the Christian life. It's the fuel that keeps Christians going and growing every day. Real change cannot come apart from the gospel. So in different ways, week by week, we'll come at the gospel in different ways. So it will be relevant for these hooper chick people that don't exist apart from this sort of advertising photograph. But it will also be relevant for everybody else as well. But neither are we naive enough to think that just by making a few tweaks to the 7 o'clock service, suddenly P's and G's will be full of people like this. That somehow, magically, they will wander through the door straight off the Gap adverts into P's and G's. They will only come if you invite them. They will only come if we as a church are praying for them. They will only come if we as a church are on their university courses or on the sa in the same schools as them or the same offices as them or on the same train as them or the same bus as them or the same school gate or wherever it is you are. One of the things, as well as prayer, that we would love to see grow in P's and G's again is a culture of invitation. We've done Alpha for 20 years, more, longer, 25 years, long before I came to P's and G's. P's and G's was doing Alpha. The first Alpha Scotland conference was, was here 
1983, I think it was. Very early on. No, 1993. But a long time ago. We've done Alpha till the cows come home. I've eaten lasagna for Jesus. <laughs> but the reality is, over the last few years, we've had a great Alpha team, but our Alpha courses have got smaller and smaller because we've stopped inviting people. We've seen fewer and fewer people coming on our Alpha courses. This year in September is the biggest Alpha opportunity that there will ever be. Can't tell you too much about it, but they're planning something right across the world as an Alpha invitation that nobody will be unaware of. And we want as a church to use it to its fullest potential. So will you start thinking about who you might invite to our Alpha course in September? Now. And start praying for them now. And pray for them every day or every week from now on until September. Because we don't just want this to be an inward thing where our relationship with God gets deeper and deeper for its own sake. Where our prayer life becomes more and more experiential for its own sake. But we want it to be a place, a church, where more and more, increasingly and in deeper and deeper ways, people who don't know that they're loved by God, realize, hear, understand, appreciate for the first time that they are loved. But for that to happen, we need to pray and we need to know that we're loved. So very simply this evening, do you know how much you're loved? Do you know that God unreservedly, unconditionally loves and accepts you this evening? Or do you still think that you are allowed a room like that room in our house when we made that video? Where everything, all the rubbish, all the garbage, all the stuff was just piled up so that nobody else could see it. And is that how you're living your life? Thinking that there are things in your life that God doesn't know about. Well, the reality is he does. He knows about them. And he still loves you. He'd love for you to bring those things out of the darkness into the light so that they can be acknowledged, so that they can be forgiven, so that they can be changed. And if you really knew how much you were loved, if I really knew how much I am loved, then that changes everything. Would you stand with me?